right, and welcome to the afternoon session. My name is Dave Hotman-Dalsh. I'm going to be chairing this session. I'm just going to uh, move straight into the first paper and introduce Kate Orkley from City University. Partly City University. Kate's also an independent consultant. Does all sorts of wonderful work. Okay, thanks very much. Have I got that weird thing that says start on me or not? I've been all the way through this talk. But, uh, anyway, um, okay, this paper's called, or this random chat as it is rather the paper, I think, uh, is called Clapton Categories, the Arts, Creativity and Innovation. And I want to look at uh, one of the effects, I think, of some of the things we've been talking about this morning, one of the effects that I see playing out in arts and cultural policy of the move to creative industries, the uh, whole sort of, you know... Um, uh, new labour moment in some ways, and what some of the dangers that I think have, have um, I think inadvertently, but some of the dangers that I think have, have resulted from that. And I suppose the first time I realised quite how far we'd gone in terms of, of public policy and collapsing the distinction between culture, something called creativity, and innovation was about two years ago which makes me a bit slow on the uptake, I realise. But anyway, um, I, for those of you who aren't sort of grubby consultants, look away now. But I get these things all the time emailed to me, which are called invitations to tender. And they're often for doing a cultural strategy or something like that for some, some part of the UK. And this one was, a, was described as a cultural strategy for somewhere called the Haven Gateway. Uh, which, if, if you don't speak that kind of language, is in fact the Suffolk Coast. It's kind of Harwich, Ipswich, Felixstowe sort of thing. Justin obviously did this we piece of work. Go <laughs> <laughs> see, you did the piece of work. I had a eureka moment, and you actually went off and did it. That's shocking, you know. Um, and what it, what it described was um, for having normal things about a cultural strategy, some need to kind of boost cultural tourism, some support for arts businesses in the region, this kind of thing, all, all the normal things that you might expect. But also uh, ways to promote creativity and innovation within, within businesses operating in the gateway. And when you read on a little bit in the, t in the text, it turned out that most of these businesses are in, are in the maritime and logistics sectors. And I remember being struck by this and thinking, why, what sort of logic is promoting cultural tourism in Alborough, helping kids to do a bit of art projects in Felixstowe, and creativity in the logistics sector linked? What possible work could one do? What possible intervention could one do that would make these kind of things in some way aligned? Um, not leaving aside the question of whether you really want creative logistics... I mean, logistics seems to me to be pretty process-heavy, frankly, and I'm not sure I really want people being creative with my parcels as they're travelling through around. But anyway, leaving that aside, what is the mechanism by which these kind of uh, things are supposed to happen? And it seemed to me to be the culmination of a process, or at least a sort of significant moment in it, because I had one of those, my God, the world's going to hell sort of days. Um, the culmination of a process that started in sort of 97, 98, um, were part of the attempt, I think, in order to stress the economic importance of the cultural sectors and that they were taken seriously within other areas policy in the way that John was describing. But part of that also became about uncoupling them from arts and cultural policy and attaching them to something called innovation policy, something called economic policy. Part of the thinking behind that being that's where the action is, that's where the big dosh is. We need to get um, uh, you know, arts and culture out of the ghetto, as it's sometimes described, of kind of arts and cultural funding. And I suppose for anyone who's been through the recent kind of Arts Council debacle, it might be a good place to get out of that ghetto. You, well, one can understand why people want to get out of that ghetto. But I do think there are dangers uh, in, for arts and cultural policy in that, un in, in that uncoupling that's gone on. Um, 
as I said, the theory is quite clearly stated, I think, in a, in a document that Stuart Cunningham wrote called um, What Price a Creative Economy, I think it's called, where he says, the price to be paid for creative economy is that the case for arts and culture will become less about their special or exceptional difference and become diffused into the need for creativity across the economy and society. Um, and I suppose I just want to say I think that's quite a high price in some cases, and I just want to talk about some ways uh, in which I think that's the case. Um, and I want to concentrate on the problems as I see them in kind of arts and cultural policy, because I don't buy the idea that culture is going to become a major player within the big world, world of big science and innovation. I go to a lot of these kind of policy gigs where people talk about the creative industries and talk about these kind of things, and there's always somebody who stands up and says, what about science? Science is really creative too, and we must pay more attention to science. And you can bet your life that if you go to a biotech conference, nobody stands up and says, what about sculpture? Or, I wish we had some artists here today who could tell us about creativity. It just doesn't happen. It's not going to have a major impact on the kind of world of, of big science and innovation, I don't think. So I'm not concerned about that. What I am concerned about is the effect that I think it might have in terms of, of arts and cultural policy. Um, so... Um, because at the back of my mind, in a sense, I suppose, and one of the reasons I have anxiety about this, is that there's a nagging feeling that we were better at this sort of stuff when we weren't trying so hard to do it. My feeling about, about the creative industries in some ways is that, and it's John's point really, about do you really want them to have this much kind of attention? Didn't they thrive better in the margins? And I'm not harking back to a kind of Thatcherite, let's just ignore them and leave them over there and completely starve them of funding. But I think there is a sense in which um, a lot of the things that we think are good and strong about British cultural policy de developed in a kind of happy accident. And that there's a danger that by paying attention to them in a slightly more structured way, some of those happy accidents get get ironed out or sort of, or sort of closed down. So I, that's, that's one of my concerns. And secondly, the, the, my concern is that in hiving off this thing called culture into something called creativity and now into something called innovation. A lot of the interesting critiques that Justin was talking about this morning that the cultural industries debate had to say about cultural policy and arts policy got lost. And cultural policy and arts policy seems to have gone back into quite a small world now. Uh, where it, I'll come on to that again in a minute, where it talks to itself again and isn't informed by those other perspectives that could have come in. So I think there's been there's a problem there. Okay, so... Um, the, what follows really is a sort of bit of a kind of a bit of kind of list really of complaints. Well, I'm really <laughs> than that, frankly. But what are what are the dangers of subjecting cultural and arts policy to to being just to being subsumed into innovation policy? One of them, and I've gone on about this at some length in other places, is I think an overfocus on novelty as the primary determinant of kind of cultural value. I think, and I think it was John this morning you said about all great art being innovation, and I kind of want to take issue with that. I don't think all great art is innovation in a sense um, um, and I, I, I think there's a, a, a really interesting book which um, I recommend even though he's a very straight down the line sort of Chicago school economist but there's a book by David Galenson about uh, which is called Old Masters and Young Geniuses I think it's, it's, it's interesting I don't agree with it but it's a quite interesting book um, and he talks about he's, because he's an economist he's obsessed with this notion of innovation and how innovation is incredibly important we must have more of it sort of thing um, and he talks about different kinds of innovators in art, conceptual innovators who make breakthroughs quite early in their lives and often come to prominence quite early, and experimental innovators. And the great example he gives is Picasso being a conceptual innovator and uh, Cezanne being an experimental innovator. And experimental innovators tend to have longer careers because they work at the same problem over a period of time. And it's all, it's all, quite, it's all quite interesting. His discussion of painters, which is what he, where he starts with what most of his works in, is very, very interesting. And then he broadens it out into talking about other cultural forms and, and from my point of view totally kind of loses the plot because he goes into a discussion of film 
where he, he has conceptual crisis because once he's got this kind of taxonomy he wants everything in the world to be part of it obviously because you've got a schema so everything's got to fit into it so he tries to fit film into it and he talks about uh, Orson Welles of course being the obvious kind of conceptual innovator um, but then he goes on to talking about Howard Hawks as an experimental innovator the examples that he gives are um, Rio Bravo and His Girl Friday now they're both great movies they're both fantastic movies but both of them are genre flicks their appeal to you, your understanding of them, everything about them is created by the fact that you've seen other movies in the same genre. I don't need to see why it adds to um, to uh, His Girl Friday. If I say I don't think it's an innovative movie, I don't mean it's not a great movie. I just don't think it's an innovation. And I think that it's unfortunate in cultural terms if we lose the language of other kinds of cultural value and other ways of appreciating culture, which are the, the product of genre, of format, of collective appreciation in a sense. I mean, something in particular like a sort of screwball comedy like His Girl Friday is almost incomprehensible on its own without the genre, let alone uh, needing to see it as a kind of single moment of innovation. So I think that that's, that's problematic. And yet it seems to have found its way right into the heart of arts policy, this idea that, that all art has to be innovation. But Masters, in the Master Review, says, it's been argued that culture does not always need to innovate to be excellent. But if it is to be truly relevant to our society, it absolutely must Innovation is understood to be the introduction of something new where old methods and systems are insufficient. Innovation is therefore an integral part of the search for excellence and should be encouraged if we're to encourage excellence. Now, those of you who are used to reading these kind of things will recognise this as a perfect piece of kind of public policy prose where everything's defined in terms of everything else within the paragraph. Uh, and you don't actually sort of need any sort of ex- external knowledge at all. So excellence now becomes part of innovation, which is part of culture, which is part of creativity. So it's, it's sort of... Sort of um, it, and, and the other thing that's striking about it is this is asserted rather than demonstrated. It? I mean, it absolutely must, all, all art must be uh, innovation is kind of asserted. So this is a world in which there's very little room for non-Western art, which doesn't tend to prize innovation in the same way. Very little room for, for craftsmanship and for the crafts. Very little room for kind of uh, genre and format pieces. This is a kind of perpetual future that we're being encouraged to live in. And I'm not sure that in terms of the production of art and culture, that's necessarily uh, we, where we want to be. The second problem, I think, is that this, this, this um, culture as an input into innovation, as an input to creativity, as an input to innovation <laughs> argument, collapses the arguments for sort of cultural funding. They collapse the fairly sophisticated arguments for support of culture and public policy that have been built up over quite a long time into a single argument that culture is an input into innovation. Um, and at the one of the many um, launches for the documents that John mentioned this morning, the, the Nestor and uh, Work Foundation document called Staying Ahead, I think, and one of the many launches for that, uh, Will Hutton was talking about the document, and he's sort of relatively new into this kind of field, um, and therefore has the kind of enthusiasm of a convert for it, and, and, and is very excited about the whole kind of subject. And he was talking about the role of the Victoria and Albert Museum in um, sort of helping, supporting the design industry in Britain, and how the design industry was very important sector and that was very important to manufacturing etc 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 and how if only we understood this we would support the V&A more than we do to which the obvious repost is and if there isn't a link between the V&A and the design industry well what are we going to do shut it down we're going to ignore the fact that it's got a world class collection of, of, of art and design that it's a centre for scholarship that it's a major part of London's kind of tourist map, that it's somewhere that London citizens need to go. It's got many, many functions in society, as all these institutions have, and we can't collapse them down to a single argument which seems to depend on proving, as evidence-based policy advocates will often assert, proving the link between the V&A 
the fashion industry and something called innovation, which, which we need a lot of. Um, the third problem I have is that I actually think a lot of the traditional views of innovation misunderstand how innovation actually goes on within the arts and culture. Uh, and you get, actually get a distortion both ways around, so you get a distorted understanding of, 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 of innovation in a sense. Um, I'm doing a project at the moment, uh, funded in fact by Nesta, where I'm talking to uh, fine arts graduates, basically. We're looking at what's happened to fine arts graduates over a sort of 50-year period and how their work, uh, working practices have changed as a result of the absorption of culture into the economy, I suppose, and whether it has any change on them. And one of the um, artists I interviewed first, she's a choreographer, said to me... Um, I have to read this out. I never read Dostoevsky till last summer, and it rained at Glastonbury. And I had some work on Glastonbury, so I spent ages in a tent, and I read the whole of the Brothers Karamazov in two days. And I just got completely obsessed. So now I'm running out of Dostoevsky. I've read them all now, and I'm down to the lesser-known ones, the double. And there's these moments in it that are kind of odd and uncomfortable, and I'm trying to work out, work out why they're so strange and powerful, yet very upsetting. Uh, no one knows what's going on, so that awkwardness, and I'm making notes about it, and I'm collecting images that cut into it and resonate with it and have some tension with those ideas. And then we talk together and make up and come up, well, let's do the complete works of Dostoevsky in dance over ten nights. Mm. Right. And the question that Nestor would pose to that is, is that process or product innovation then? Which <laughs> seems to me to be utterly irrelevant to what this person's describing in this, in this, this very complicated idea of how cultural uh, ideas are absorbed and, uh, and changed. Uh, and my fourth concern, and I think probably my, my most uh, acute one at the moment because I've become slightly obsessed with this subject, is that I think a desire to insert innovation into kind of arts and cultural education in particular might be one of the ways in which we are at risk of undoing the things that we used to be good at when we paid less attention to them. Um, and my, my sort of pet theory at the moment is that most of British popular culture can be explained by understanding what goes on in art schools. Um, and I think that they've been a fantastic accidental innovation on the part of British public policy over the last sort of um, 50 years or so. I'm not sure that's a process that's going to continue at all. Um, For those of you, I was looking for a a good book on this, actually, when I first started doing this work. And for those of you who want a good example of what I'm talking about, I recommend Michael Bracewell's book on Roxy Music, which... Justin told me to read, and is, you know, a very, from my point of view, a really, really interesting examination of the role of art school education in the production of popular culture. But if you're a Roxy Music fan who's looking for some gossip on who Brian Ferry slept with, don't bother. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty heavy duty. But anyway, one of the things that struck me in, in doing these interviews with these uh, art school graduates, fine art school graduates, is the change uh, in the experience of that Education in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and now. Um, and I think there is sort of two primary changes. One is about um, the 60s, 70s obviously being a sort of halcyon period of it. We're b- bumping into popular culture. And if you read the Ferry book, even about the 70s in Newcastle, the kind of space and time that people had, the hanging out with huge small classes, of course, huge... Um, hanging out with artists and practitioners, hanging out with your, with your sort of teachers in that way, learning very strong peer learning through talking to other people and very strong peer learning through talking to art school assistants who play this much unsung role, as far as I can tell, in teaching people technical skills within these things. Um, you know, fast forward to now and what people describe as a much more conventional educational process, so the transformation of art schools into universities, I think, is problematic in that sense. It's become much more kind of conventional uh, sort of process, and I, th- I think. Um, so just a couple of sort of, you know, uh, quotes from, from interviewees, I think, about, about that experience. One of them from the 1970s says to me, um, 
keeping a notebook and thinking through a process, how to get from A to B, how to solve things, how to go and get ideas. There are technicians, in, there were technicians in different disciplines who'd always have the information you could go and access. There was always information could be found somewhere you just had to get it. The book or person would help you. Um, you know, interviewee from the sort of late 1990s says access to tutors was very, very poor. College is completely oversubscribed and really understaffed. The fact that I was never actually taught to do anything, it bothered me immensely and it still does to this day. But anyway, um, <laughs> then you can't expect a technician to give up their day. They only earn like 13 or 14,000. You can't expect them to give up all their working day when they're just supposed to be there to man the office in order to teach you. That's the job uh, of a tutor. So I think that's describing a very kind of different uh, experience. And one of the things that I would be really yeah. concerned about and uh, I don't think that moving it into innovation policy is going to help this at all, is that it's, so, it's very difficult for something like that tradition to survive the experience of mass higher education. I don't know how you do mass higher education in art schools. It seems to me to be highly kind of problematic given, given what was sort of successful about it uh, to start with. And just finally, as, as I said, and I won't labour this one because I think other people might, might do it uh, somewhat better later on, but one of the things that I think is difficult the other thing that I think has been problematic about this uh, focus on innovation rather than kind of arts policy is that many of the critiques of arts policy which did come from that kind of cultural industry background have sort of been lost. So we've been through this process. We've been through the last 10 years of trying, often in a very kind of heavy-handed and clumsy way, but nonetheless trying quite seriously to understand who gets to access the arts, who gets to perform, who gets to perform, who gets to consume, who under what conditions, to try and, I, I think, and I think, as I say, it's been a very clunky, but I think there has been an attempt to focus on markets and audiences for the arts in terms of arts policy, which McMaster's completely, it seems to me, reverses. We must get away from this box ticking, we must get away from worrying about who the audience is, we must return to a notion of excellence. And the notion of excellence seems to me to be very uncritiqued and not very uh, informed by many of the debates that have gone on over the last 20 years. So I think arts policy has been left, okay, been left in some ways to fester and to come up with these rather, um, I think, of unfortunate uh, notions of, of excellence, etc. So um, how can we uncollapse the categories? Just, just, just two, two instances, I think. I think um, one of the things that we do need to do, and it is happening, albeit I completely agree with John that, that Will Hutton's diagram of concentric circles and the one that's in the uh, EU report is problematic. I do think we are returning to a way of unpicking what we've loved together as the creative industries and recognising that there are, really are differences between the production, between working in a, uh, an antiques market and making telly and you know working in software and doing painting. I think we are kind of trying to unpick those things and I think that, that might help because we'll understand where the role of culture in its traditional form has more of an influence than, and, and less of an influence. And secondly, I do think the issue of um, looking in more detail at sort of creative labour, which I know we're going to be talking about uh, later on, will also help us to answer some of these questions about what is it about, uh, in particular, about a kind of artistic education, what is it about immersion in the arts, which tends to produce these kind of workers and these kind of skills which are supposedly so valuable to a creative economy. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, ten minutes for questions and comments. Yeah. Um, say who you are? Aaron Moe from UCL. I'm interested in your study on art school graduates and um, the role they play. Um, but if we look at the Manchester Arts music scene. Um, almost 
most of them work, they come from off school. Most of them didn't even go beyond college level. Um, how do you account or research these sorts of people? Um, yeah, there's two things there. I've, I'm certainly not claiming that everybody who works in popular culture went to a school. I think there is a high number of them, but I'm certainly not claiming anything more than that. Um, how do you research them? I think you can go and talk to them. This is the only way that I know how to how to kind of unpick this. I didn't. Um, I don't think that you can get at this issue of how innovation, how ideas move around between these industries, how innovation takes place, how new ideas come to be. I don't think you can get at it. Um, through a lot of the kinds of research that's going on at the moment, and I particularly worry about the emphasis on kind of quantitative research and in trying to demonstrate quantitatively what's going on in these things, because I think it's really about understanding the process of, of how these things go on, and I do I think you can only get at that by talking to people about these things, and, and it's sort of labour-intensive and it's slow, and you can only ever talk to 40 people in one study, and it's. But I just think that's where the dog's buried, as my old lady used to say. I just don't think you can get it in any way, really. And the bus cops went to art school. Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay, Jason has a question. Jason's on um, thanks for that, Kate, which I, 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 I totally agree with, with your thrust. Um, uh, and it's very timely, I think, too. For too long, this whole question about what, you know, what culture that's been, has been suppressed. But I wanted to take up the, the issue about innovation just a bit more. I don't think you are saying this at all, but there is a danger, possibly, that one throws out baby, you know, babies in bathwater by, by, by rejecting innovation. Isn't one of the big problems that innovation actually has a quite strong ideological tinge, which is to say that it, it, it's about product innovation, and therefore it represents a kind of economic nationalist imperative, that, that whether it's culture or whether it's com- computer software, whatever, whatever the product is, that innovation should be built into it because it, it leads to, it leads to um, British-based companies um, thriving. But that doesn't mean that it's actually a bad thing in the arts at all. Yeah. It, it just means yeah. that it, one, need, one needs a multivariate. Yes, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, I, I mean, I completely agree. I didn't mean to suggest that innovation is a bad thing in the, in the wider economy or that innovation is a bad thing in culture. I don't. I just think that it, if we focus on it entirely in culture, we do miss other cultural values which are important and we, which we need to support. And I also think that, but I agree with you, I think it's more about saying you can't necessarily have a, mo- a notion of innovation which you want to force onto these kind of things. You have to look at how they do innovation, which is my point about how you have to go and talk to people and find out how they do innovation in order for that to inform our notions of innovation, I think, rather than doing it the other way around, which is this is what innovation is, go out and find someone doing it. Just, just to, I mean, the other side to innovation is destruction, uh, which, I mean, in, in the artist's sense as well, you know, you can't innovate without smashing the old, so... Yeah. I mean, what, I mean uh, you mentioned, um, you know, the use of the art colleges. I mean... Uh, what about knowledge trans? It's now called knowledge transfer, and it's really being foisted on, especially creative or cultural faculties. Yeah. Um, I mean, how, how do you feel about that one? Um, again, I think it's. I mean, I th- it clearly goes on when you just talk to these people about um, how it is that they became. Um, Retail, how they go, came to design the interior of Bieber in the 1970s and the King of Road or wherever it was, or how they got into the music business or, or those kind of things. There's clearly a process of knowledge transfer going on. But that was, they weren't in any sense, um, there was no sort of um, 
uh, architecture, there's no infrastructural architecture, let's do knowledge transfer in, in, in our colleges. Our, our knowledge transfer was just what they did as a byproduct of turning out all these people who had a lot of time to spend thinking about things and hanging out and, and kind of, you know, inventing their personalities and all that sort of stuff. It was a sort of byproduct of it. It wasn't a, a deliberate policy aim of it. And the problem with turning accidental happy byproducts into deliberate policy aims is you often end up just messing around with them and they you know you lose what what you had in some senses i think by by instrumentalizing it in that way and i think that's what's happened with um the absorption of articles particularly into universities and the desire to have them all have knowledge transfer people who do whatever it is that they do i don't know andy I think also, I mean, just that in terms of the context of this debate, I mean, it's not something I don't think you would disagree with at all, but the, the issue that uh, even all these terms like innovation, etc., are things that are imported from uh, an economic discourse, and they're equally problematic there. And, yeah. and, and, and of course, there's a huge debate there about that, uh, uh, although the mainstream debate is about outputs, but you, know, you can't have innovation without the context. And often what we're talking about in the creative um, is, to, is to hold that context and, and keep that there rather than only be focused on the outputs. And it mm-hmm. seems as though you know, it's, a, it's a doubly bad story to import a notion of innovation from you know, sort of the field of economics, which is only concerned with outputs, and then say this is the way that art ought to do it. It, just, it, it seems totally the wrong one with it. So part of the problem is is the knowledge transfer from economics yeah. or, or from, or from yeah. traditional industrial yeah. policy. Yeah. Which, is, uh, which is so problematic in and of itself yeah. that then reframing the world in, in that way actually yeah. loses all that we have. And, and then there's a bigger argument there is actually, so actually most of the analytic tools that we have actually can't see what's going on in culture. And that's why, you, yeah. you know, as you yeah. say, you have to go and talk to people because if you use the tools, then you lose most of actually what will be interesting to find out. Yeah, yeah. Take John's question. Sure. It's not a question, it's a rather irrelevant comment, but I'm going to make it anyway if you don't mind. When you mentioned the V&A and Will Hatton trying to justify public expenditure on the V&A in some sense, I mean, it's quite an interesting case because the V&A came in part out of a select, or the 19th century equivalent of a select committee on the fact that German manufacturers were better designed than British manufacturers and and part of the purpose of the V&A was yes. as a, a very, very didactic institution yeah. and because it was for working people, they put gas lighting in and that was a terrible scandal to yeah. artificial lighting in a museum, but it changed the way museums work and all that was completely unintended consequences of uh, concern about the state of the British economy. It seems to be one of those little examples of uh, the strange way that cultural policy evolves. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I certainly wasn't, I wasn't again, I wasn't trying to claim that it doesn't have links to industrial sectors. It came out of, as you say, concern about British economic competitiveness. And, and, but over that time, those roles have become more complicated and, and take on other kinds of meaning and other kinds of roles. And I don't think they should be collapsed back into a single function, in a sense. Time for one more, if you wish. Yes. Sorry. Um, yeah, Nick Clifton from Cardiff. Just, just a very quick one. We heard a bit about... Uh, uh, the importance of uh, intellectual property rights in the, in the previous presentation. Um, and I suppose that, that raises questions about, you know, why do some places retain the value of their, of their creativity in ways that, that others don't? Um, and I just wondered, you know, is that about... Is, is it about the surrounding institutions or is it about the individual capabilities of the, of the artists or the, or the music ma- makers or is it about 
you know, some kind of supply side, um, you know, funding for for retaining your own IP rights or something like that. And I just wanted uh, about that. And I just wanted does that also confuse the debate between uh, what's art, innovation, and what's intellectual property? Because obviously, you know, you can have intellectual property without innovation. Uh, the two is that yeah, and you can have innovation without intellectual property as well. Right. Um, well, very often, of course, and, 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 and very often you do. Um, uh, I think I'm sure there's loads of people here better qualified to answer that question. Okay. When you say some places that retain it, do you mean countries that, or, or, or regions or, or cities or whatever, whatever level you want to you want to focus at? Definitely, someone better qualified than me to answer <laughs> that question. I, 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 I'm sure I'm sure it'll come up again. I think it's a good, good question, okay. but uh, I'm sure it'll come up under creative labour if not in the rest of this session but, uh, you put your hand up at exactly the same time as that person I <laughs> see you would you like to ask your question yeah um, what I would like to go to Ms. Hollage um, I would like to know from you Kate as how Kate um, how can we bring like your research which is related to how artists themselves experience their labour conditions or maybe also life conditions to um, the discourses in arts and cultural policy and discourses in creative industries today. How can that, you know, where's the artist located? Oh, right, okay, yeah. A good point, actually. I think it is interesting that... um, some, one, of the, one of the unfortunate, I suppose, consequences again of um, the creative industry's sort of moment, and again, it can be unintended, is that on one hand, there was a kind of focus on the individual and the small businesses, as was um, said this morning, but there was also a sort of the producer also sort of disappeared in some way. And then we had uh, publishing, but not writers in, in, in the kind of, you know, famously kind of thing. And we had art and antiques market, but not painters sort of thing. So there was a sense in which um, the completely understandable uh, reaction to the kind of romantic ideal of the artist and the kind of reification of all of that has led to a sort of, I think we're sort of in an unfortunate position now where we need to kind of bring them back in a little bit more, possibly in a different kind of form. But I mean, it's clearly, they're clearly not representative of all forms of cultural production. But there is, there are things about the way that those particularly individual kind of cultural producers work that I think sometimes a lot of the focus on, on, on cultural labour in particular looks at, 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 at industrial organisation of labour and, and, and in a completely understandable desire not to focus on the artist we've kind of stopped focusing on artists at all which I think is a little bit problematic again I'm sure that one will come back in the creative labour se- se- session thank you Kate uh, our next speaker is Chris Bilton from the University of Warwick talking to Kate on the way here about how she's probably going to steal all my best lines and the bad thing about having slides of course is that they're all here and I can't take them out again so um, anyway what I wanted to do um, this afternoon was talk about creativity and and how a sort of one-sided version of creativity has skewed our definitions of creative industries and creative economy and then I want to go on to talk about what some of the differences might be between policies for the creative industries versus policies for the creative economy and how picking up on perhaps what Kate was saying about how maybe we need to actually try and separate those out and allow them to have more of an accidental relationship rather than lumping them in as one, one leads naturally to the other uh, I want to start let's see if this works here um, with a picture of uh, uncreative industry it's the bottom of it. Yes, it seems to be lit up. Um, 
This is a description of Coke Town. Sadly, nothing to do with Coca-Cola, although um, it, maybe it should be. If I was really clever, I would have put a picture of a Nigerian bottling factory on the right instead of that one. I got Google Images. Um, and this is kind of this is what the creative industry is going to save us from. That's the that's the kind of the rhetoric, I suppose. So then we go from that to this, which is a nice picture of Tate Modern. Um, Thomas Frank um, described the creative revolution in 1960s advertising. And he described it as being sold as the opposite of the square, boring 1950s. So this new, cool, creative industry called advertising brought together the subversive promise of the counterculture with libertarian management theory and a thrusting, ambitious business culture. And maybe in today's creative economy, we're seeing something, diff- we're seeing something similar. Creativity gives business a human face and it unleashes a new age of hip consumerism. And by pointing at the familiar bogeyman, big business, traditional manufacturing industry um, and factories and Fordism and all of those things which uh, seem to exist in 19th century novels by Dickens, today's creative class can present themselves as the alternative, young, intelligent fun, tolerant, talented so, so this is the progress that we're being offered and all of this of course oops, go back. Um, all of this appeals to politicians as well um, because it appears to solve the problems of supply and demand. Creative goods don't satisfy a specific need, but speak to a seemingly insatiable desire for novelty, self-fulfilment and meaning, and they're made from this intangible source called creativity, which seems in theory at least to offer infinite supply. They depend upon a workforce which is highly skilled, highly educated, yet which is prepared to work for very little pay in precarious conditions, because it's assumed that they work for love, not money, and happily take on some of the employer's risk in return for the independence of the freelance economy. And we call this intrinsic motivation. Economists call it oversupply. <laughs> so, so the reality of the creative industries then, I'm suggesting, is different from all of this. Um, and, and, and the creativity, it's more complicated. First of all, creativity is only one small ingredient, perhaps not even the most important ingredient in a successful creative economy. And secondly, creativity is not a stable or predictable commodity. Living on thin air in our post-material economy may leave us hungry. Um, In this paper, um, then, I want to talk about creativity, but I'm going to go back to this again. We've we've seen this creative industries definition before. And I want to talk about what are the the assumptions behind the official UK government definition of creative industries. Now, we we heard from John, actually, the whole thing wasn't about creativity at all. It was a a stalking horse for intellectual property, actually. But never mind, I'm going to talk about it as as it's there. Um, First, there's uh, the assumption that creativity is based upon individual talent. And this follows that, a long tradition in Western thought, which we can trace all the way back to Plato or to 19th century romanticism or the Enlightenment project, a belief that creativity uh, is a special type of thinking associated with a special type of person, and that, that special ability has the power to, to change the world. And secondly, there's a, an assumption that creative processes and people follow the laws of economic rationality. So creativity results not only in economic well-being, but uh, creative people and processes will respond to external incentives and rewards. And, and the reality, again, as Freud noted, is, is, not, is not that. I mean, we, we create because we can't really help it, because we're neurotic and we can't think of any other way to live, not because we, we need a job, necessarily. Um, 
And thirdly, there's this argument about intellectual property. That an intellectual property, what it does is it, it, it places a stable economic value on uh, intangible products and services. So according to that logic, our, our ideas become as a, a commodity which can be developed and delivered through a traditional value chain. And that, that principle of organisation of the value chain is reinforced as the idea of artists at one end creating uh, ideas and then that being exploited through developers and marketers and distributors and eventually consumers. Uh, and above all, above all of this, really, there's the assumption that uh, that content um, is emphasised above everything else, and, and this neglects other types of creativity and value which are necessary to the process of cultural production. So there's some problems with the definition, which we, we've already talked about, I suppose. And the second problem is, I suppose, the one I've already alluded to, which is, are there any uncreative industries? It's actually quite difficult to think of them, and uh, you know, certainly there's plenty of, of uncreative work and uncreative jobs, quite a lot of them in the creative industries, so-called. But uh, are there any uncreative industries um, which don't use any individual creativity, skill, or talent, or which don't generate any form of intellectual property? I mean, cars, you know, biotechnology, agriculture, they, they all generate intellectual property. So what's the point of, of that definition, really? Um, the flip side to that, of course, is it's quite difficult to separate out um, the material resources and the mechanical processes that make creativity, creativity into a, a real product. So um, we, in, in definitions of intellectual property in the creative industries, the intangible idea has to be fixed <coughs> in a tangible form. And similarly, in the creative economy, Nike creative economy company into the business of branding and marketing still has to attach its products to uh, a material product. So in the creative economy then, that's where, that's where all that... Uh, you know, I was talking about what's happened to our own creative industries. We exported them all to Indonesia <coughs> so that we can get on with the business of being creative. So, so it, it, this mater post-material creative economy may not actually be so radically transformatively different from the old economy. That's the first point I want to make. And, and secondly, by hitching our definition of the creative industries and the creative economy to a rather limited, one-sided view of creativity and culture, which, I mean, Kate's already alluded to, we might be pushing our cultural policy in the wrong direction. So, um, so what is creativity then? Um, well, most, um, most psychological definitions of creativity include these two components, novelty and value. And, and they say it's not enough to have a novel idea. We all have novel ideas all the time, don't we? But how can that idea be developed and applied? And this connects with the theories of in innovation as an application of creativity. And it, it also introduces a notion of complexity, multiplicity, many stages or steps in, in a creative process, not one blinding flash of inspiration and so on. Uh, and, and it also suggests that to carry out all of these tasks, uh, we might need more than one person. We might need to start thinking about creative teams or networks or art worlds rather than creative individuals as our unit of analysis. And so we move from the raw idea to a notion of valuable innovation. So, going back to the earlier discussion, art, all art is not necessarily innovative, and all innovation is certainly not necessarily art. Um, quite the opposite, I guess. Um, I should, at this point, I should show a picture of my daughters and talk about whether it's art or not, but I'm not going to skip that out, actually. Um, so, so, when we describe, then, the creative process, there are actually two linked processes occurring simultaneously, concerned with novelty and value. And these are variously referred to as divergent thinking versus convergent or lateral versus vertical. And, and we, we, we talk about left brain, right brain. And the, the argument here is that if you focus too much on one side of that, you get 
you get, the, you get, for example, if you focus on this, you get lots of ideas but no real solution. And if you focus on the other side, you get, yes, you get a solution, but it's not a very interesting one. It's a kind of boring idea um, rather, than, uh, rather than an exciting one. So creativity requires us to sort of make connections between these two modes of thinking. And in fact, you could define creativity as an ability to switch rapidly between modes of thinking or frames of reference. That process was described by Arthur Kersler as by association, the ability to make unexpected connections uh, or surprising connections between two habitually disconnected ways of seeing or thinking. And so if that's what if creativity is about trying to do both, trying to connect things together, then it, it requires that we have an agile mind that makes these connections, but we must also have access to different ways of thinking. Uh, and avoid the temptation to repress one part of our mental process or personality. So when you do these, when people do this, uh, these encephalograms of artists painting, they often find that, that the painter is using the part of their brain associated with music, for instance. You have these sort of unexpected connections, these ac- happy accidents within the brain, and that's kind of what we're trying to reproduce when we're talking about the creative industry and creative economy as well. Um, um, Henri Poincaré was a 19th century mathematician who was also interested in creativity and he came up with this value, this, this idea of the creative process. So he says you start off with preparation, then you have incubation, which is going to sleep in the bath and kind of thinking, you know, letting your back brain go to work. Then you get this blinding flash of illumination, which is the kind of light bulb comes on. And then being a mathematician, you then have to work out whether it's true. Now, that, you know, obviously he may be overemphasizing verification because he's a mathematician, but most creative processes, I would argue, include some kind of version of these different types of thinking overlapping, converging, p- c- coming together, coming apart. When, when I show this to, to students in, in Warwick Business School, um, I, sort of ca- I, I do some moonlighting in Warwick Business School, they'll say, oh, yeah, it's a value chain, isn't it? And that's, well, that's what that is. It's, it's a sort of it's a process. And, you know, in a sense, they're right. It is a value chain, but, but it's also about um, making... Uh, Make, it's really these different stages kind of overlap they, they, they converge and they overlap it's more like a value web than a value chain we actually kind of flip backwards and forwards across this and the different types of thinking relate to these different criteria that, that, that are contained in, in, um, in uh, definitions of creativity so maybe our, maybe our verification and our preparation are to, to do with the value criteria and the incubation illumination to do with the novelty criteria maybe you know I mean, you, you, could, you could make that uh, separation so Based on all of that, you kind of this comes up to the, the next bit, which is what is creativity? Then it's is this. It's the, these are some definitions of creativity. Um, creativity then is as a process. It requires this ability to switch between apparently contradictory ways of thinking and seeing, and that d- depends on both an ability to to tolerate those contradictions in the first place, and also to recognise the unexpected connections. So again, you think about tolerating contradictions, think about art schools. You know, think that it, it sort of connects back together again, doesn't it? Um, this, so it's this idea of paradoxical thinking or bisociative thinking. Then. And in terms of content, it includes these two components. So it's not just new, it's also valuable. Um, and it's, it's, if, it is not, if it's merely novel, then it's not creative. And finally, it, it leads to something that transforms <coughs> the context within which it takes place. So Picasso changes the way we think about painting, or James Dyson changes the way we think about vacuum cleaners, or, or about vacuum cleaner advertising, anyway. Um, and, and clearly, these, this idea of a creative process could take place in a boardroom, or a factory, or in an artist's studio. It, it could happen in either place. So it's a, it's a sort of more generic definition of creativity, if you like. 
So if, that, if that's what creativity is, is that very helpful for an idea about the creative in- policies about the creative industry or creative economy? You know, p- well, possibly not, actually, um, when I'm thinking about it. Um, I won't go to that yet. Um, so when we apply these ideas to the creative industries, we, first of all, we move beyond that individualistic model, which I think every, everybody's already referred to this. Uh, and we... We also move away from simply content generation, this sort of individualistic model of you know, coming up with ideas. Creativity is associated with the method of delivery as much as the raw idea. So um, from the consumer's point of view, the, the, the marketing and distribution are often as much a part of the process of the product itself. So th- think of your, I don't know, things like mobile entertainment, like your iPod, or, or the experience of, of going out to watch a film or a play and so on. And, and I think that artists actually sort of intuitively get this and that they intuitively want to be involved at both ends, like the guy here. He's a sort of one-man band doing everything, doing his own tickets and everything. Um, so you, know, you look at things like Radiohead, for example, um, selling their music, not selling their music, you know, speaking directly to their fans and challenging the, 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 the standard business model of selling CDs. Or you think of things like uh, websites where, like slicethepie.com, where, you, where fans invest in um, unsigned acts. And you think, well, th- actually, these are, these are really interesting creative forms, um, but they're not to do with... They're, they're to do with the way the content is delivered and consumed as much as they are with the product itself. So, so the classic model of the value chain, then, with creativity at one end and consumption at the other end, starts to break down. And, and that whole process of, of adding value, if we're talking about novelty plus value, is not linear. It's, 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 a, it's a web of connections rather than, a, rather than a value chain. So, interestingly, this whole discussion of value, then, connects us back to some of these, you know, 10 years on, connects us back to some rather older ways of thinking about creativity in the creative industries. It connects us back, firstly, I think, to Bourdieu's theory of symbolic goods, which Dustin has alluded to, not today, but elsewhere. Um, And this idea that the creative industries deal in intangible goods, intangible products. So um, you have... You have sort of this is, this is the sort of I suppose the, the the cultural the cultural value side. And this is the creative novel, the sort of novel innovate novel innovation side here. And creativity is about the connection between the two. So um, it's a rather confusing picture, isn't it? I realised after I put it up there. But the idea here is that what you've got on the right is is this I suppose the old world ways of thinking about creativity and culture. And um, you know the idea of symbolic goods um, locates value in the processes of consumption and in the sort of individual and institutional context in which that consumption takes place. So rather than the input of content of production. So so in the language of marketing, you you start to move away from ideas about product to ideas of product surround. And and creative value is is produced in that mind's eye of the consumer and is filtered through all all the postmodern paraphernalia of reflexivity and self-actualization, contingency and all of that. So in in the production of pure novelty, then content may indeed be king, but in the creation of value, context is king. That's the, that's the, the argument, and that's what Bourdieu talks about. That's what he gives you. And it's also what the idea of the cultural industries gives you as opposed to the creative industries. Um, so ten years ago, when, when we started talking about, or when, um, when uh, the DCMS started talking about uh, creative industries, what they were doing um, as a sort of accidental byproduct of that, I think, was disconnecting um, 
creativity from the social context where meaning and value is created and, and instead focusing on the pure novelty of idea generation as if that was a self-sufficient contained process. So, so cultural industries, again, cultural industries are, are intricately bound up with questions of value and creative industries assume that we can uh, separate out novelty from value and, and separate out creative individuals from creative cultures. So, so we can apply these arguments about creativity to a, a new mapping of the creative industries, which, which no longer sees the creative individual, creative content and creative ideas in splendid isolation. So if that's, if that's kind of what arts policy is about, then creative industries policy kind of goes a step further and says, well, actually, that individual act of creativity is embedded in um, all of these other things that happen around it. Um, so um, connections with collabor- collaborative networks and so on that, that spin out from that. All of these things kind of spin out around it. And that's, that's the, the infrastructure, the art world, that allows creative individuals to be creative. Um, and that wider set of relationships has been variously described as project ecology or weak ties or, or network economy and so on. Um, so... That's, that's one sort of set of connections that radiates out from the creative individual. And then you have these sort of vertical networks, which I suppose we might associate with more of a creative economy way of thinking about creativity. Um, and they, these describe the sort of access to, access to finance, access to markets, um, you know, needing to actually convert your, your creative idea into something that has economic value. And, and without access to those value, those value chain relationships, the creative idea kind of dies on the vine. Two minutes, Chris. Oh, blimey. Okay. Um, so, so let's move on then to what are the policy implications of this then. Um, firstly then, I think that um, we, we move away from... Um, I've, I've argued this idea about creativity being complex, multidimensional process, p- paradoxical thinking and so on. Historically, I think cultural policy, European cultural policy, is focused on this kind of stuff here. And when you start talking about um, the creative industries, you start to focus on these things over here. Um, now that might mean change, looking at infrastructure, looking at art colleges, looking at, looking, at, um, looking at things much more broadly in policy terms at things like um, transport policy or social policy or housing policy. It might include, it might include things like intellectual property laws and, and trying to get away, you know, trying to actually free up the exchange of ideas on which creativity depends rather than locking ideas away <coughs> under corporate custody with Mickey Mouse holding the key for life plus 70 years, which sounds like a death sentence. So you're, you're kind of trying to release ideas in order to allow the creative work to happen rather than locking things away uh, using IP law. Um, and interestingly, you know, lo- again, this, this, this idea then is that a lot of the, the interesting creative policies that have developed as a result of creative industries policy, creative industries policies have been to do with distribution rather than production. And the recognition that the US film policy, the US film industry depends upon distribution and depends upon a very strong domestic film audience as much as it does on product. And you could say the same about uh, Korea, for instance. That you know their their film industry has a very strong domestic market. So does India. This this we've had this before. Um, I'm, I'm, this is this is the, I'm going to credit this to David Throsby rather than Will Hutton because I think it gives it's more credible that way. Um, so. Uh, the, 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 the assumption coming out of Nestor and other places is that there's a kind of natural spillover from the creative industries to the creative economy. So Judy Dench is, in, is, is a product of our subsidised theatre and, she, and she's in films. 
So you, you, to a certain extent, that's true. But on the other hand, we still don't have a British film industry to speak of, really. So it doesn't. There's a limit to how far that spillover really happens. And I think that the, the problem here is we tend to overvalue creativity in the creative economy. And I can. Re- I'm, I'm over budget now, aren't I? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've got like I've got like a little bit more just to get through. Um, 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 a few when the DCMS was setting up, it, it invited all these people in and a lot of to, to talk about from, from the media and entertainment industry to talk about policy. And a lot of them couldn't understand why they were being invited to the DCMS. You know, these people from the music industry saying, "Why are we, why are we talking to DCI? They're the ones that deal that deal with intellectual property." And one of these music industry guys again came to talk to my students. One of my students said to him, um, "Why are you? Uh, you know, what's creativity? Where's creativity? What's that, how's that work in your business?" And he said, "Well." What's creativity got to do with the price of fish? Which, um, which I, I don't think he understood the question. We certainly didn't understand the answer. <laughs> but what, what I think he meant was that creativity is actually a fairly small part of what the music industry does. It has been and it probably will continue to be. It's not that important. It's not how they see themselves. Going back to this thing about self-perception, people don't see themselves as businesses. They don't see themselves as creative either. Nobody's ever really described themselves as working in the creative industries after all. So, so, the, so I think that you know, there's, a, there's a wider definition of what creativity is that can be found in entrepreneurship and strategy and marketing and management. And if we're interested in the creative economy, we need to look at some of this stuff. We need to look at ideas of management, consumption, and branding. And, and, and the creative industries has kind of been good at that historically. This is the last, last slide. Um, so the creative industries has been good at, um, at things like um, consumer creativity and, uh, and th- you think of things like YouTube, think of things like Napster, um, new sets of relationships between, between consumption and production. But that, that kind of, that form of creativity is not exclusive to the creative industries. We shouldn't, we shouldn't kind of aggrandize the creative industry to that extent. <coughs> so we need firstly then to, I think, to separate out these two policy challenges. We need to look at how to nurture core creative industries through providing, through looking at infrastructure and distribution. And we need to look at the wider creative economy um, in terms of um, a much broader understanding of, of patterns of consumption and exchange, many of which start in the creative industries. And maybe this idea of creativity as paradoxical thinking can, can help to connect these two realms, these two discourses together. Um, and, and assist in a more dynamic connection between cultural policy and economic policy, um, between creative enterprise and mainstream management. But, but that's another that's another whole story. So stop there. Thanks, Chris. A few minutes for questions and comments. Yes. Chris, uh, I was from I wanted to ask you, in a paper you wrote about the informal economy of the, the creative, the creative enterprise economy. They're kind of the, they sometimes are the plankton for uh, for the whales, the larger uh, organisations that feed off this informal economy. Do you think that uh, encouraging creative entrepreneurship within this sort of uh, network, informal network, will allow them to really start using this intermediation, or as you just said, is this really all? meant to keep on feeding the big fish which means that we're not really learning anything well, I, you know, I think that this thing about Justin mentioned knowledge transfer and, and you almost want to reverse the flow of it and say well, what, you know, let's look at how the kind of things that artists do and the sort of thing that, that filmmakers and cultural entrepreneurs do in relation to audiences <coughs> think about how, how that might have a, an implication for bigger organisations 
Um, and, and also, I share Kate's um, sort of discomfort with this lumping together of, of, of arts creative <coughs> industries with the creative economy as well, and, and the lumping together of, create, of innovation, creativity, and entrepreneurship. And you know, if you look at something like creative partnerships, that's a lumping together thing, it's very unhelpful. So, I don't know how this is. Thanks, um, Robert Cleary from Leicester University. I'm interested in your, the point that you made about the overvaluing of creativity. And I wonder if that's also a conceptual problem on the part of academics. And I thought your own presentation sort of suffered from that as well in the way that you deconstructed the value chain to be a web, not, not a linear process. Because the value chain, that idea of the value chain, the value being released at the end, of course is an oversimplification of the way the production of value operates, which is the business tool. It's not a direct mapping of reality. I don't think anybody who uses a value chain in any sort of business, creative or not, would suggest that it, it was. Because, of course, every stage in any value chain is also the end stage of another value chain. And I wonder if this reliance upon this symbolic value being diffused along a web in the value chains it means the value of creativity conceptually doesn't become the end point in a process, but is diffused throughout the process. Yeah, I, I think I, I was trying. I think that was one of the things I was trying to say. You know, that the, the, the creativity does spread up and down the whole, the whole throughout this, throughout the network. You know, the dots, whatever you want to use to describe this. And, and I think probably networks and hubs is probably a better model than value chains and circles. But they're, they're saying to John, they're hard to draw, especially with PowerPoint. So we you know, can do that. But um, the, the the difficulty I think is that innovation, novel ideas, work quite well with a value chain. You know, novelty happens here and it, and it has an impact here, 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 and it spreads along. Value is very different. It doesn't follow that linear path, does it? it it's embedded in networks of, our, of, of value and, and assumptions and genres and all of those things. And it's, and it's released through quite complicated patterns of consumption. So it doesn't, so it doesn't really follow the, the chain model. So there, there is a misconception. Yes? Uh, sorry, no, yeah. Um, thank you, Chris. Um, someone mentioned Orson Welles earlier today, and um, Orson Welles, of course, famously said that... Um, in his career, he was 5% making film, 5% of his time was making film, 95% was of his time was getting money to make, um, make his films. Mm. And my friends who work in that industry would probably say the same thing. Um, and I think your, your point at the end there, which I think you're probably rushing because of time, but um, what you're saying that what we, what we need to focus on is creative management as well as uh, focusing on creative people. Yeah, I, I suppose what I'm saying is that if you if you think of creativity in a, as a broader in a broad terms of a broader definition, then <laughs> you, there's not much there's not a great deal of mind in just getting artists to go into businesses and kind of teach people better communication skills. But what you can do is you can look at the the kind of structures and practices of, of the creative industries and try to think about how those provide a different way of thinking about dealing with discontinuous change, dealing with creative cons- consumers and unpredictability and all of those things. Okay. Yeah, one more. Oh. In your distinction between culture and creative industries, um, you didn't speak about space, and you didn't mention space or place for that matter. Um, do you feel that this could be another element which could distinguish between the two terms, or 
They yes. both have to be socially <coughs> and geographically embedded. Uh, I think place can be, you know, if you, somebody talked about the Manchester music scene, for instance, I mean, certainly certain subcultures, certain places clearly have provide that kind of connectivity. It doesn't have to be placed, though. <coughs> I suppose a lot of the kind of the whole creative cities, Richard Florida kind of thing, is there's an assumption that, that it's all about places, it's all about thick, stable communities, actually <coughs> networks probably a bit more fluid than, than the fixed geography allows for. John, is it a quick question? Well, it's slightly tangential because I slightly picked up on the reference again to Hollywood and distribution and mm-hmm. um, oh, turned me back <laughs> to Justin's question about <coughs> state policy, particularly in European nations in relation to the global economy. And I mean, I think that's the third time I've heard Hollywood and distribution trundled out <laughs> as an example of and a kind of significant model and I mean there's two issues about that one of course it is an integrated production distribution model that also relies on a clustering of activities around LA it relies on economies of scale through slates of production it relies on the size of budget that no other economy can compete but also if you look at the political economy of that distribution it's a kind of global distribution network which basically creates an unequal economy so at one point, the British Film Council had a policy that it put all its money into creating a distribution company for British film, a sort of polygram mark two. And of course, it was decided that, that all the money the UK Film Council had was the equivalent about the budget of one Hollywood film, and it was a kind of pointless exercise. There was no possibility of the UK state intervening sensibly in distribution that was dominated by the Hollywood majors. So it seems to me the kind of invocation of Hollywood and distribution and the model that it takes has to be handled with great care because in some sense a lot of your model is, is very kind of low-key focused but you have to think of the macro level and how distribution <coughs> networks are dominated by multinational corporations and sometimes this focus on creativity and exploiting creativity also has to look at the global structure of the creative industries and how the logic of the global industries is towards conglomeration, towards um, concentration of resources, and therefore Hollywood is a very problematic model in the relationship of the UK economy. Chuck, to respond just quickly. Yeah, yeah well, I slipped Hollywood in at the last minute. So I was picking up on the <laughs> You're exactly before. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, I think yeah, I agree with you, of course. But I think that my point would be that it's even more pointless to try and compete on the level of production, isn't it? Because you're even, you're even. First of all, you're even more hamstrung in terms of budget, but also the whole, the whole thing of picking winners. Is a, is a kind of it, it's a fool's game I think and so 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 yes it may not be the it may not be maybe sort of pissing in the wind a little bit but it's better than it's probably better than than putting your money into production and I do think if you look at Korea for example I think that that what they've achieved in terms of domestic box office share of domestic box office for Korean films is quite impressive and that's not been accidental that has been something that's pursued through policy so there are things one can do even as a relatively small player. But yeah, of course, I mean, the bigger picture is kind of rather desperate. I agree. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> We'd better move on. Uh, thanks, Chris. Our next speaker is Jason Toynbee. Well, well, well uh, from here at the Open University. Well, Jason's coming up, I just wanted to check. Is it because I've been living in Yorkshire, or is it very warm in this room? <laughs> <laughs> Would some of the people sitting down in sad mind opening a window? And maybe it's because the sun's very strong on this side of the building. 
you might get noise and wind, but it might be worth it, might Ah, the door, the door, that's a good idea. Thank you. Okay, Jason, I'll take you two minutes to go. Thanks, Dave. Okay, um, this paper's called Adjectives That Matter, Cultural Industries, Creative Industries, and the Politics of Culture. Now, what I want to do today is join the ongoing creative versus cultural industries debate, um, which we've obviously heard um, quite a lot about already, I guess, on, but on the cultural side. What I hope to add is a more fully fleshed out notion of how cultural artifacts are distinctive, and in making that argument, I focus on the politics of culture, a theme which has been central to cultural studies. My point is that if culture does indeed matter politically, then we need a better understanding of how this is so, better than is provided by cultural studies, and therefore in what sense the cultural industries might, should be a matter of public policy. Let me start by sketching positions, and I'm going to be probably a little bit repetitive, but, but I've probably got a slightly different take on some of these positions than the ones we've heard so far. For a strong statement of the creative industries approach, I want to take Stuart Cunningham's article from 2004, The Creative Industries After Cultural Policy. In a nutshell, Cunningham suggests that while the cultural industries, as originally defined, are small fry, the mainstream knowledge economy is big, and by relocating symbol-making, the arts, cultural stuff, in the creative industries, along with software and telecommunications, what happens is that tiny cultural production gets to sit in the warm glow generated by these corporate giants. Creativity multiplies, and everyone benefits economically. Now, objections to this kind of approach, I think, the creative industry approach, fall under three main heads, I'd say, and I'm probably being reductive, and I'm probably being selective, but what the heck. First, there's an argument about the incoherence of the creative industries uh, as a putative industrial sector, and Chris Bilton's talked about that briefly, but I'm also thinking of the work of Andy Pratt, 2004, suggesting that creativity is a requirement in all industries, and is thus hardly a criterion of difference. Um, what's more, the new virtual work practices, which are supposed to define the, the creative sector, are often actually not at all well implemented there. Secondly, doubts have been raised about the beneficial effects of creative industries in labour markets. Um, so Kate Oakley, who we heard earlier, in an article from 2004, points to a lack of hard evidence for creative industries ventures helping to develop local economies. They don't do that very much, she says. And when new jobs are created, they tend to be socially exclusive rather than inclusive. Uh, meanwhile, Rosgill, who we're going to hear from shortly, has shown that um, so-called project work in new media uh, fosters the, actually fosters the development of new kinds of gender inequality around pay, conditions and security, or rather the complete lack of security in, in such industries. Um, but it's really the third criticism that I want to develop today, um, which bears on the meaning of culture with which the culture, cultural, sorry, and potentially the creative industries are associated. What's the meaning of the culture we're, we're invoking here? Now we can see, I don't think this is very much discussed actually in the, in, in, in the cultural industries um, uh, literature. We can see it in embryonic form perhaps in Nicholas Garnham's piece from Cultural to Creative Industries from 2005. Garnham argues that the creative industries strategy, and I quote, marks a return to an artist-centred supply-side cultural support policy and away from that policy direction. Um, which use of the term cultural industries originally signalled. In other words, a, a focus on distribution and consumption. So with this move away from this uh, emphasis on, on, on uh, distribution and consumption comes a renewal of a more exclusive high arts agenda. Um, the key word here is excellence. Again, Kate, I think, has quite rightly deconstructed that. Um, uh, and, and I suppose recent evidence of that would, would perhaps be the Arts Council cuts at the end of January to nearly 200 groups and concentration of its funding in fewer metropolitan centres of, guess what, excellence. 
Um, but as Garland points out, not only is there a contradiction between excellence and access to the two contradictory aims in, in creative industries, discourse and policy, the idea that market-driven economic growth can make culture more widely available carries the implication that public policy is itself redundant in that area. There's no point in intervening if, if the market can get you access, then why do you need to intervene? Now, it seems to me that Garland's criticisms of the creative industry's agenda are both cogent and damning. But the problem is he doesn't really provide an alternative approach other than suggesting we go back to the cultural industry's agenda of the 1980s. Now, in effect, as has been discussed, Justin, I think, brought this up very nicely, this was a specifically British form of social democratic recognition that commercial culture was too important to be left to the market and that selective intervention in the cultural sector was needed so as to mitigate unequal distribution of scarce cultural resources. The practical implications, again, Justin talked about this um, quite a bit earlier on, uh, were quite complex. But in general terms, um, as at the GLC, sort of classical cultural industry policy, was premised on support for distribution, so as to build audiences for cultural reforms beyond those sustained by pure commerce. Now, I think this approach has been broadly progressive on it. It's, it's, it's a good approach. But it doesn't get us very far in identifying what culture is and what it is for. But if it's, uh, that, that, you know, in, in a sense, what the creative industry agenda does, if you like, is it poses that challenge to the nth degree. We need to return, I think, to big questions. And the big questions are on this page. Um, <laughs> oh yes, the big theoretical and normative questions are of the sort about what culture is and why it matters. And in the rest of the paper, I want to suggest a way of doing this. And I take as my point of departure for this Francis Mulhern's critique in 2000, uh, his book called Metaculture. Uh, as my point of departure. Now, Mulhern proposes that what is at stake in cultural studies, his book is, half of his book at least, is a critique of, a comprehensive critique of cultural studies. What he says is at stake there is, and I quote, the status of the cultural, and specifically its relation to the established form of general social authority, namely politics. In effect, he says, cultural studies demotes politics proper by treating all spheres of human practice as cultural, yet also implicated in relations of power. Hence the ubiquitous category of cultural politics. In cultural studies, cultural politics is everywhere. There isn't really a single sphere of human activity in which cultural politics doesn't have um, some stake. Now, of course, Nicholas Garnham, and I think um, you know, a political economist, expressly separates his own position from that of cultural studies. Yet, the significant point, I think, is that something like cultural politics, maybe I should put that in quote marks, have actually, has, has come to, to inform the cultural industry's literature, cultural industry's discourse, and, and in an important sense, quite rightly so, for such a notion at least provides an account of the value of popular culture, for example, on the grounds that it may involve resistance to power or that it validates the cultural experience of ordinary people in a democratic way. These values of cultural, uh, cultural politics then feed into the justification for state intervention in the cultural industries. However, if cultural politics already thrives in the field of commercial popular culture, then it's hard to see why policy should be needed here at all. In other words, the same criticism that Garnham makes about the creative industries agenda, he says, why, why do you need a state to get involved, can be applied to the cultural industries approach as well to some extent, I think. And there's a further problem. As Mulhern shows, in its fullest development, cultural politics actually stands opposed to, to state intervention. They're really contradictory because state intervention undermines cultural autonomy, which is the key value in cultural politics. Uh, we can do it ourselves, man. So one way out of, I think one way out of this dead end, then, is to look beyond cultural politics as, as it's conceived in cultural studies 
and to look for some more contingent values that might inform cultural policy. And I think a very good example of this uh, it has hardly happened in the last, um, the last 15 years or so. But um, a good example of this would be from 1990, Justin Lewis's book, Arts, Culture and Enterprise, where he poses a set of six values. Diversity, innovation, art in the environment, um, social pleasure, creative expression, economic value. Which together provide a rationale for a, more, for a democratic and egalitarian cultural policy. The argument is pragmatic and developed, as Lewis puts it, and I quote, within a clearly defined social and cultural context, rather than the abstract notion of excellence. And I think that's good. But I also think that there's an unavoidable contradiction with these set of values. Quite simply, the better defined the context, as, and Lewis is very keen to emphasize context, the more local it is, with the result that it becomes difficult to show how a single value system can be applied across the whole cultural field. On the basis of context, the basis of Lewis's argument, in other words, how can we possibly make a meaningful choice between, say, Hot Chip and Harrison Burt Whistle? Um, in other words, between you know, a, a currently um, um, successful pop, art pop act and you know, a high art um, classical composer. It seems to me that this relativist conundrum, this problem of um, relativism, which derives from thinking about a very contextual system of values, pushes us inexorably in the direction of a more objective con conception of why it's symbolic artifacts matter. Now, such an approach has been more or less dropped in cultural and related studies, the assumption being that objective simply means authoritarian, unitary, and just generally bad. Um, but I don't think this is the case. And in other fields, apart from cultural studies and media studies, um, there's been a return, quite interestingly, I think, to a kind of analytical aesthetics which uses um, the notion of objectivity. A good example of this for me would be Daniel Kaufman's work, 2002. He's recently suggested that rather than dwelling on problems of subjective taste, which is the approach taken by Hume, by Kant, and then critiqued by Bourdieu, it's the sort of straw, the straw person for um, anybody who's influenced by cultural studies, their attacks on the notion of imminent cultural value. He's saying rather than taking that approach, we should understand cultural artifacts as objects made for artistic purposes. These belong to a general type of purpose, which Kaufman calls, and I quote, expression of the cultural interests of a civilization, unquote. Kaufman goes on to argue that symbolic artifacts articulate these general cultural interests, but in doing so, encapsulate specific aesthetic purposes. They have, very, they have quite specific aesthetic purposes. As such, they are susceptible to normative judgments concerning their objective value. We can make rational, normative, evaluative judgments about uh, culture. Now, the notion that symbolic objects bring with them functional criteria evaluation is attractive, I think. And I think it's partly attractive because it corresponds to how people in everyday life evaluate stories, music, and images on an every, you know, on an everyday basis. When we argue about texts and performances, we tend to invoke things like purpose, appropriateness of means and execution. I mean, you know, endless pub conversations that I certainly have um, to the entrepreneurial boredom of anybody overhearing about music involve almost, you know, they're passionate, but they're utterly objective. They're all about trying to mobilize rational arguments about why something's better than something else. Um, maybe I'm unusual in that respect. <laughs> In other words, though, if that is the case, we seek to establish rational criteria for judgment. And I think that takes us some way towards an account of cultural products which might inform cultural policy, one based on principles of objectivity and the virtues, it's an Aristotelian approach, really, the virtues of symbolic artifacts. However, the other part of Kaufman's formulation, which I mentioned just now, where he says, expression of the <coughs> cultural interests of a civilization. I think that's less helpful. I mean, it sounds much more like a kind of conventional, rather unthought through, high art notion of what culture is about. 
and, and one of the reasons it's, it's not very helpful is because it does imply unity and coherence when in fact culture is contradictory as any other part of the social world. How, well, how is culture contradictory? I suppose that's the next question. If we consider culture in the broadest terms as the semiotic domain of making meaning and affect, then cultural work cultural forms, necessarily have to refer in some way to the structurally unequal nature of the social world. Capitalism, racism, patriarchy, and so on. Now, this isn't, in the first instance, a matter of moral obligation. I'm not saying that artists, creative artists, have, in the first instance, I think they have probably second, third, or fourth instances, they do have a moral obligation to talk about it, but that's not the point I'm making here. Um, it really is to do with the fact that culture stands on the grounds of the social. People located in social roles are its subject and its object. Now, of course, there is a huge variety of kinds of reference to our divided world, from something like social realism, which is explicitly social in its reference, to work that ostensibly has no social content, for example, instrumental <coughs> music or abstract painting. Yet even in the latter case, there is surely social meaning, a dissonant rejection of how we live now, sometimes, or other times, a utopian reaching beyond it to an emancipated future. This is the sense in which culture has a politics, I think. But it's not necessarily an immediate, concrete politics, as in cultural studies, where semiotic democracy or cultural resistance are supposed to be able to win some autonomous space in the here and now. Rather, the kind of politics I'm talking about is diffuse, and it's a second-order politics. It's an intimation of unfreedom, as well as the possibility of another world. Now, reflections on aesthetics and politics of this sort are quite abstract, I realise. Yet it's not, I don't think, it's not abstraction that makes it difficult to bring them into cultural policy. Rather, I'd say the problem lies with the way the debate has been constricted in the public sphere. And again, um, other speakers this morning have talked about this. The possibility of radically questioning why culture matters has been, has been almost eliminated, for the time being at least. The creative industry's agenda has certainly played a key part here, but as Dave Hesmond-Halsher shows um, in his article from 2005, that's only one aspect of the way in which neoliberalism has inflected New Labour's approach to media and culture in Britain. Um, Richard earlier on mentioned the BBC. I mean, we can think about media too in, in, this, in this respect. Now, if, as I've been suggesting, um, culture is in some deep sense about social injustice and, of course, emancipation beyond it, then it is also palpably shaped by injustice in the sense of the unequal distribution of cultural resources. And Bourdieu's critique um, has been invaluable here in showing how cultural capital is allocated according to class and how possession of such capital enables its owners to elevate themselves over others through a strategy of cultural distinction. But useful as that is, as it is, I think there's a problem with this, which is that Bourdieu treats the dimension of aesthetic judgment purely as an effect of the structure of cultural inequality. Symbolic works are understood as markers of stratified taste alone. That's, that's his only interest in them. That's a difficulty which is exacerbated by Bourdieu's sub subjectivist approach to culture. So, while on the one hand, he is suspicious of Kant's notion of disinterested taste, I mean, he takes that to be the, the, the bogey, um, the, the bad thing, um, because it's, it's the aesthetic strategy adopted by those who endow with the most cultural capitalism, it's, it's bourgeois taste. He does that, but at the same time, he effectively endorses Kantian subjectivism. Aesthetic value in Bourdieu's uh, approach is in the eye or ear of the beholder. My argument, of course, has been to the contrary, that we should understand value judgments as rational and on this basis begin to reclaim aesthetic objectivity. So, to the extent that world music really is good, then it's a bad thing that it is marketed only to a middle-class niche in the metropolitan core of the world system. That's bad. 
Equally, the fact that the great majority of people in Britain cannot access Beethoven's work ought to be you know, a cause for major public concern. It's scandalous that, that most people in Britain can't get access to, to Beethoven for material stroke cultural reasons. Once again, though, creative industries, discourse and policy make it difficult to confront these issues. In Stuart Cunningham's essay, for example, I mentioned at the beginning from 2004, the whole question of why intervening culture is reduced to how the otherwise marginalised cultural sector can be sneaked onto an agenda shaped by the neoliberal state in order to please ICT corporations and intellectual property rights owners. Yet this barrenness of the creative industries approach does at least force the question of why culture matters. It pushes those of us who want to support cultural industries and cultural policy towards a deeper engagement with aesthetics and politics. Now, I've suggested that an objective, virtue aesthetics, combined with a weak, if you like, utopian conception of cultural politics, can provide the basis for such an engagement. Still, I haven't, as I realise, developed the argument beyond the barest outline, so I guess I should end with that old academic cliché, more work needs to be done. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Questions or comments? Sorry, I've finished. Sean, yeah. and then Richard. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting, and it just reminded me that, I mean, even within government, there was a certain backlash against instrumentalism. And Tessa Jowell wrote that document where she began to make a declaration that the artists should be defended or valued in their own right rather than as drivers of economic regeneration or means of social uh, inclusion. However, it sort of seems to have been pushed sideways, and partly that seems to be because there's a kind of vacuum about the discourse of aesthetic and cultural value. And I suppose it is really to sort of push you, I mean, given that it's impossible to escape the audit culture, the measurement culture, uh, there is a kind of onus on people to come up with an argument whereby you can, in some way, lay claim to a measurement of aesthetic or cultural value beyond the instrumentalist. And I'm just wondering, although you're engaged in further thought, have you, how much thought have you given it so far? Yeah, well, that's obviously a very good question. It's a, and um, as you say, it's, a, it's, the, it's the hardest question. Um, yeah, well, well, to begin with, I'm not sure that cultural policy should be about establishing measures. I'm not sure that one can establish measures in that sense. Um, that one can say that's extremely good, that's pretty, pretty good, and that's you know. In other words, I'm not sure that one can do something which is equivalent to university marking. I mean, university marking is itself a pretty dodgy activity in many ways, isn't it? In terms of you know, we, we suppose that there is this this quantum, but nonetheless, that does seem to be more or less legitimate. I'm, I'm not trying to knock university marking. I don't think you can do the same thing, um, or at least. You can do it, but you have to do it in quite a contingent way. What I'm more concerned with is thinking about broad principles, um, how you can start to establish broad principles for talking about uh, a common culture. And the reason why commonality is so important is because if you have a cultural policy, it can't be exclusive. It can't just deal with high art. You have to have an aesthetic approach which takes in both high art on the one hand, on the other hand, um, you know, um, chart pop music. Um, and has to be able to make decisions about allocation of resources in that broad terms. So, um, of course, what I'm doing is a rather... Um, actually, I'm copying out of answering your question. That's great, all right. But I think it can be done. The question, I suppose, is how far do we need to go towards a mid-level form of, form of setting out of this aesthetic, of, of, of such an aesthetics? Uh, and not only that, but how often, how, how, would we, how would we review and process it? I mean, it's a highly content, it, it, it's a conflictual model. It suggests that we don't live in a, in a good society. So, you know, it's, 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 it's got problems, but um, I'm suggesting we should, we should give it a bash. Thank you.
<laughs> Richard. Um, two more questions you might also evade. Um, one a sort of theoretical one and one empirical. The theoretical one is, you know, I, I like to sort of move towards subjectivism and you posing the questions about, um, you know, distinction between, you know, is there anything different in the um, aesthetic engagement with different forms of, um, of, of, of culture? But I don't see why putting that subjectivism which you, I think, rightly brand as Kantian on the agenda is necessarily um, incompatible with a kind of rational discussion of the grounds for those judgments. And there's all kinds of um, human experiences and activities that we'd say are subjective. You know, the aesthetic is one, the erotic is which are certainly open to discussion without um, denying or sort of evacuating the, um, the core subjective element. Mm. The empirical question is, who is it who can't afford Beethoven in this country? Because Beethoven has never been so cheap. You can get it free on the radio. You can get it on CD for about three quid. You could have unloaded, the ho- downloaded the whole of Beethoven free off the BBC website if you were organised enough for the week that I had it. I'm not talking about the, 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 the fact that you can get cheap and access and yeah. Beethoven issues, or the fact that the BBC broadcast Beethoven constantly on Radio 3. I'm talking about the fact that working class people are systematically denied access to that culture but in and through, in, in and through well, what, structural inequality. Well, and that is cultural, what, what, that's a cultural why, element why, of material why, inequality. Why does one say they're denied access rather than that they choose to do something different? Because, go back to my point about this. If, as soon as one starts, well, that's why you see, that's why objective is important. Because I'm saying that it's likely, at least, that, that Beethoven is objectively a good composer. And therefore, it's unfair that access to Beethoven should be denied to, whole, la- to large but, sections but, but of the population. But access isn't denied. Well, for the reasons I've just described, it has. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about uh, what you mean by access denied. I have, I have a larger structural conception of access okay. than you do, I think. You, I mean, after all, you do really think that the market is where access begins and ends. <laughs> 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 so, to answer your first question... To answer your first question, which is, which is also an important question, but the question about... which is why can't we keep a counting notion of subjective aesthetics? Mm-hmm. The problem is that really Kant fails to resolve the problem of, of subjective on the one hand and universal on the other. That, that's, he tries to do that, but just like Hume, he completely fails to be able to, to, actually, to actually produce a synthesis but, but, between... But why, do, why do we want a sense of universal anyway? When it, obviously, in the world, different view groups, different language communities, different historically formed communities, because have very different senses of what... Yeah counts as the aesthetic. Because, because so politics why do we want a universal, other than the subjective one? That is your last question. <laughs> <laughs> because, because, politics, because politics is based on some notion of universality. That you, that you aren't unfair to people. You, people ju- you p- treat people justly. So it's a technical... Ah! Changing the question now. But, um, I mean, you, uh, what's the name Kaufman? You, you, you mentioned that... Um, that you've got an objective notion of uh, aesthetics in some way, uh, which I like. I, I mean, it reminds me of Simon Frith's performing rights, you know, a lot yeah. of the poems there. But you want to uncouple it from the, the other phrase, I can't remember, something, what, what's useful for a civilization? Yes. Seems some way. Expression of the civilizations. Yeah, and, I, and I, I, I don't think you can uncouple them, but I, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Mm. 
because I think they part the same thing. I think that's where that question was going. Really. It's because part of that objective judgment of, uh, is what's important to us. And the problem with the, the classic arts policy is who's us, you know, and on what grounds, blah blah blah, etc. Mm. Et but I do, th- I mean, I, I do think you're right that that we a universal sphere, but maybe we could call it a public sphere, is one in which those judgments of importance in common need to be made. And it's a, it's a big struggle to study John Farrow, etc. Et but, but I do think that necessarily, and if ultimately the two things do hang together, because basically the working class should listen to Beethoven, if you like, because it's an important crucial part of understanding who we are and where we've come yeah. from. So I, I don't think you can, but, but that makes it much more problematic, you know, politically. Yes, I mean, I, I, I think I agree with you, really. I, what, all I was saying was like, what I object, well, how I object to Calvin's formulation is it, it is too unitary. He suggests that there's an unproblematic set of cultural values, which, you know, which is very hegemonic. In fact, we, in my view, we live in a, in, a, in, a, in a society which is not free, and therefore we need to think about culture in relation to an unfree society. That's why I emphasize both utopian and, if you like, negative. In some, in some ways, what I'm saying, it's not at all original. It's, it's, you know, it, it, it's related to the Frankfurt School, to the whole, you know, Hegelian Marxist, you know, aesthetics and politics um, um, tradition, I guess, really. And, uh, just a tiny little, <laughs> tiny little one, which is an anecdote I was talking about mm. last night. It's not the working classes in that sense. If you watch University Challenge, which is my indicator, <laughs> absolute ignorance of classical music. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's yeah. it's actually more complicated. It's the collapse of a, yeah. one particular yeah, tradition, and I, and I think that's something again that's uh, that's, that's important. Again, it's about what about heritage in that sense. Mm. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, I just have a quick, quick comment, and I'll keep my eyes open for any further questions. The, um, I, I think that you're really right to try and enrich the way in which cultural policy discusses questions of uh, artistic or aesthetic value, because it seems to me that uh, I was glad John mentioned Tessa Jowell because it seems to me that she was representative in that moment where she's the minister for, she was the minister for culture in Britain until relatively recently, now Olympic minister, and you know she represented, if you like, the the, 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 the softest bit of New Labour's attitude towards culture, which was that we must defend its intrinsic merit. But that intrinsic versus instrumental opposition is it's one that it's. It's, it's the only place people can go and it's been shown to be really problematic by all sorts of, of philosophers including pragmatists and one of, one of the things that I think it's not like the Simon Frith version of aesthetics actually because because that's a very pragmatist notion more in line with somebody like Richard Shusterman I think this is this is actually a very different take on it that that is a, a, about an almost universalist project which of course will be enough to a lot of people for, for good reason but it certainly needs it, defending I think thank you but it's, I think it certainly yeah I take your point there but I think it certainly corresponds to Frith's I mean, in other words it, 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 it's, it's, it's quite compatible with it right right well that's interesting yeah but it's about enriching the way cultural policy conceptualises yes, exactly. the thing that well, it's very important speakers have raised this this morning you know Andy was talking about this too you know, the fact that we don't have we don't have this being developed. Yeah. We don't really have a discussion going on in creative industries debate about what culture is and what might distinguish it from something called larger thing called creativity. And that is going to be hard and abstract, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's just the way it is. <laughs> Any other questions or comments?
Okay, let's break for tea and coffee. I think we're back here at three o'clock, is that right? <laughs>